Don't need to tell you, but life can be hard. Any, any time when we are gathered here, we have brothers and sisters who are struggling in all sorts of different ways. Some struggling with chronic illness, aging parents, difficult work situations, a marriage that's unraveling, children who are sick, loved one with cancer, leaky roof, car that's dying, friend or family member that they're having some conflict with. You can just sort of go through the list and, and one of those probably touched you somewhere or you've got something else. In, in addition to just the, the daily life sort of challenges, there are unique challenges that come to us as believers in Jesus Christ in following after Christ. Talking about Jesus to unbelievers can be something that promotes fear for us. Your faith in Christ may have strained relationships with other people, family, friends who, who, who don't want to hear about Christ. Um, the spiritual disciplines, the things that are meant for our growth and our blessing, Sometimes can be challenging to maintain. Prayers may feel like they go unanswered. Things that we plead for that we just don't seem to, to get a response. Our flesh battles temptation. There's brothers or sisters who we wish we could help in some way, and, and yet they don't seem to be teachable at the moment or responsive. Life and ministry can be hard. Turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13 and 14 together summarize what we commonly refer to as Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, th this starts in Antioch, and if you look at the map that's on the screen, so in the northeast corner is Antioch in Syria. There's two Antiochs, one at either end of the screen. And so it starts up at Antioch in Syria, comes down across the Mediterranean to the island of Cyprus, it crosses by land the entire island down to what would be the capital of Cyprus there at number three, and then on up into the mainland and, and into a region that largely is the churches that would form the churches of the region of Galatia. When we get the letter to the Galatians, that's where we're talking, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, that, that area. Uh, so this is a significant trip. Um, one that probably took place over the course of about two years. What we're going to do is take Acts 13 and 14 together, but over two parts. We're going to uh, look at it this week and again next week. Next week, I want to kind of focus in on, on, on some of what Paul specifically preaches when he goes to these cities. He typically goes to the synagogues first and he preaches. And so we'll, we'll look more at what Paul's preaching next week. But for this morning, I, I, I want us to just think about this in kind of the, the broad sweep of the first journey, in particular taking into account two things, the, the hardships that they face on this journey. Acts 13 and 14, as it gives this narrative, tells us of significant hardships that are faced on this trip. And, and again, it's, it's easy for us if you sit and you just read Acts 13 and 14 and in a matter of minutes, and in 10 or 15 minutes you get through the, these two chapters, to, to just see this as all kind of a, a series of events that just sort of happens one after another and, and overall has a good outcome mixed in with a, a couple of hard moments along the way. Uh, but I think it's important for us as we go through this to see that this was a hard journey. It was filled with difficulties. There were all sorts of challenges that they faced. So I want to see that, but also how they faced those hardships. There's, there's two clear responses to hardship that we see in this story from God's people. But there's also just the recognition of how God is working in this and what he's teaching Paul through this. And so we're going to touch on that as well. Uh, but we're going to run first just through some ways 
that there are hardships on this journey. Three specific ways, you've got them there in the notes, um, that, that life and ministry were hard in particular on this journey. And the first one is just the hardships that are associated with travel. Just the, the undertaking that this kind of effort was in the first century, it is probably impossible for us to fathom what it's like to spend two years traveling through fairly rugged terrain in parts with no, no real reliable sources of communication about all you could do is send messages through messengers who went by foot as well and traveled. And so there was no real communication, no car, no bank account, no debit card, no GPS, no weather forecasting technology, no ability to go on the internet and check the town ahead and see where the places were you could go and, and, and what had the best reviews. No, no ability to reserve travel on a ship, no ability to reserve a place to stay. I mean, you, we, we think back, some of us are old enough to remember the days of actually going places without smartphones, and we think, how did we do that? How did we actually accomplish the things that we did without being able to instantly call one another? Imagine this. Imagine doing this kind of travel, and then in the midst of it, they have to work all along the way. They have to earn support all along the way to, to do the things that, that they're doing in terms of, of ministry. We know by God's providence, the Romans had built what was the best road system up until that point in history. And there were ships that sailed the Mediterranean from port to port, cargo ships. And so God's providence provides the ability to, to do this. But there were real dangers. There were dangers in travel out on the roads, just being out on the open roads from thieves, from the elements, from opposition that, that we, we know chased Paul from one town to another. And then there's no real passenger service for these, these ships that are going on the Mediterranean. You don't have passenger ships, you have cargo ships. And so you, you go down to the port and you negotiate and find out where that ship is going and you, you hope to get a spot on a ship and it's not a stateroom and it's not a nice seated spot. It's made for cargo. And so none of this is easy. And then, and then they're working. We know from a later trip when Paul goes to Corinth, that he stays with Aquila and Priscilla, and it says in Acts chapter 18, he says that he stayed there because he was of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Paul frequently has to use the, the skills that he has, the, the work of his hands, to provide for himself. Now, there were certainly offerings and gifts along the way, but, but we know from reading Paul in First and Second Corinthians that one of his great concerns was, I don't, I don't want you to misinterpret why I'm out here, and so I really don't want your money. He, he made that very clear to the Corinthians that when I was with you, I worked in your midst so that there wouldn't be questions about my integrity. And so there's work and travel and all of the hardship that's associated with just getting from one place to another. Second thing is opposition from Satan. And we're going to see this all throughout different points in this passage. They are constantly under some form of spiritual attack. We, we know this because Ephesians 6 teaches us about spiritual warfare. And it says that we face opposition from, from forces that Satan is actively engaging with us. But there's several specific examples here in Acts 13 and 14. First one comes up. They, they've traveled to Cyprus. You saw the, the map. They went across the island. Presumably, we, we don't get a lot from Luke about what happens on Cyprus. They go from the east end to the west end, and they go by land. So presumably, they're, they're preaching all along the way. And they finally get down to that southwest corner 
to Paphos, which is the capital that Rome had set up on Cyprus, where, where the, the, the governing, the proconsul, is, is the one who's in control. And, and they, they get there, and Sergius Paulus is the proconsul. And so if you look at Acts 13, verse 6, it says, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician. A Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, Bar-Yeshua, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, this is Bar-Yeshua, is also called Elimus, um, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So they have traveled through Cyprus, come across land. Presumably, at some point, word has preceded them before they get down to Paphos that, that these guys are preaching, and they are preaching about this Christ, and Sergius Paulus wants to hear from them. The Romans are very much a, a polytheistic culture. They believe in many gods. It, it's no surprise, then, that Sergius, who is sort of the governor of the island, has a Jewish a magician, a, a Jewish interpreter of signs as one of his colleagues because the, they're relying on a lot of different religions. And so if this guy can maybe interpret some dreams, if this guy can maybe offer some predictions about the future, then he's worth keeping around. And so this Bar Yeshua, Bar Jesus, is, is there as well. The, the name Elimus, again, means sage or interpreter of dreams. And so we have his real name, we have his show name, kind of the name that he called himself. I am the interpreter of dreams. I am the one who can help you understand what lies ahead. He is actively, without any pretense, trying to stop what Barnabas and Paul are seeking to do. What Sergius Paulus has asked for is, come and you tell me about this Jesus that you have preached, and in steps this magician, this false teacher, to do everything he can to stand between the governor and Paul and Barnabas and, and to thwart the preaching of the gospel. In fact, Paul describes him in verse 10 as a son of the devil. It's an ironic twist because Bar-Jesus would mean son of the Savior. And, and, and Paul says, no, this one actually belongs to the devil. He is an enemy of righteousness. He is determined to stop the spread of the gospel. This is spiritual warfare. This is Satan actively working to block the proclamation of the gospel to the governor of the island. Put yourself in this place where you've, you've been given this opportunity to, to speak the truth of Jesus Christ to some high-ranking person, to somebody of note in, in, in some way, and suddenly a close advisor to that leader says, you should never listen to this person. You, they're full of lies. Everything they say is untrue. Don't listen to anything that person says. Imagine that. I, I don't know about you, but I, I would at least at some point here, if, if I'm trying to talk to the governor and his closest advisor is, is describing me as a liar and, and a false teacher, there's something in me that might at least be tempted to say, I, I need to move on. This isn't a great place, and, and I'm just going to leave. And yet, there's no indication of that in the text. They, they proceed, and then they travel on. They go back across the Mediterranean. They get to Pisidian Antioch, so that's the other Antioch, the one to the west. And they are invited by the rabbis to speak there. Uh, verse 42 says, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So they, they get there. 
They go to the synagogue, which is what they ordinarily do. Jewish people have the Old Testament scriptures, have an expectation of a Messiah. So Paul goes, he proclaims the Messiah has come. He is Jesus Christ. The people are just taken by the preaching. They hear it and they, they respond and they say, you need to come back again next Sabbath and you need to preach again. And, and, and even so, during the course of that week, they start telling their friends and news gets out. And so by the time they, they gather the next Sabbath, it, it describes the whole city as, as coming out, as wanting to hear Paul and Barnabas. And so look at verse 44, um, Acts 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. The rabbis were the ones who initially opened the way for Paul to speak, said, come and, and bring a good word, Paul being a, a rabbi in the past. And, and now, now that they've seen the crowds, now that there's Jews and Gentiles, now that there's this flocking to, to hear Paul and Barnabas, they are just stirred up with jealousy. And they can't take it, and they begin to speak abuse and blasphemy. They are reviling Paul. They are mocking Paul. And they are blaspheming the message of the gospel that he is preaching. This is what they're enduring in one city after another. These are the accounts Luke is giving us as they go and they preach. And there is immediately hostility. There is satanic opposition to, to what they are doing. And it comes in various forms. If you look in chapter 14, it takes on a different form. Uh, they arrive in Lystra. And, and one of the things God does is he uses Paul to heal a crippled man early on in the ministry there in Lystra. And if you look at chapter 14, verse 11, it says, And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. So when Satan doesn't stir up direct opposition to them, Jewish leaders who come against them or some false teacher who lies about them, he now takes and takes this mighty work of God to heal a crippled man and he twists it in the minds of the audience now to, to give credit to Greek gods. To, to give credit to false gods. And so they're now attributing all of this on, on Paul and Barnabas as if they are now Greek gods who have come into their presence. And, and, and you see it. Paul and Barnabas just, they strenuously object. I mean, they are livid in their opposition to this, these kinds of statements and saying no, and they're pointing them to the one true God. This is all Satan's efforts to interfere with the proclamation of the gospel, the sort of things that, that you and I sometimes run into when we seek to speak about Jesus Christ to other people. Sometimes there's direct opposition. Sometimes there's just utter confusion. 
they, they hear and, and they, they don't focus and they have other questions and it's distracting. And if you try to proclaim the gospel, you, you find yourself running down all sorts of rabbit trails. And, and what Satan does is he just stirs up this confusion. You and I are, are not traveling the, the terrain of the Middle East in the first century, trying to earn our living and facing hostile magicians and idol-worshiping people, but spiritual warfare is still real. Satan's opposition still takes many different forms. He is still bent on thwarting your efforts to tell other people about Jesus Christ, whether that's by inducing fear in you because of somebody who might be hostile to you, or whether that's by distracting people around you or circumstances around you or, or, or causing intimidation or confusion or whatever it is. The ultimate goal is that we would, in futility, just quit. Just say, I can't do this. This is pointless. Doesn't get anywhere. All, Paul and Barnabas are facing all these different hardships, the travel, the opposition. And then it gets worse. As if it hasn't been bad enough, they get to Lystra. And Satan's opposition comes in the form of severe persecution. If you look at verse 19 of chapter 14. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. You know from the rest of the story that Paul was not killed, that he, he was able to rise up. God rescued him from that. But it is hard to imagine this journey getting much harder. They've already persevered through tremendous circumstances and hardships, and then at Lystra, they've, they've had this confusing encounter with people who think that they are gods. And when they are trying to proclaim the gospel and they are trying to point to the living God, here comes the opposition again. And this time they, they become violent and they attempt to put Paul to death. By God's grace, he survives. But again, put yourself in that place. I, I, if, if the last straw hadn't been pulled by now, this, I think, might be that time when you and I would go, you know, this, this journey maybe wasn't really meant to be, and maybe it's time to, to bail out of here. And yet we know that they, they go on to Iconium and to Derby, and, and they continue to travel. There's one more thing that happens in this story that, that we sometimes miss in the course of hardships. There's the travel, there's the opposition, but there's also the, the hardship of abandonment. They started the trip with a young believer by the name of John Mark. This is the John Mark who we were first introduced to his mother who had the house where the believers were gathered in chapter 12. Remember, they're praying for Peter to be released from prison. Well, this is her son who presumably is a, a believer. It's from Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas on one of the, the journeys to Jerusalem meet him. They see in him the potential for a faithful servant, for a traveling companion who can be of help to them. And so they take him first to Antioch. And the church, when they, it, it sends out, when it commissions Paul and Barnabas, sends John Mark along with them. And he begins to travel with them. And, and, and here is a young disciple who's brought alongside Paul and Barnabas to travel, not not simply to be an observer, though he is. He's clearly there to learn from them, to be discipled by them, but he's also there to help them. Acts chapter 13, verse 5 says, John Mark assisted them. This was a guy who could help carry some of the load, who could help perhaps earn something to, to provide for food or for lodging, who could perhaps 
help with some of the things that needed to be done so that Paul and Barnabas could focus in on the work of ministry. Here was an assistant who could come alongside and and help them along this difficult journey. But at some point, on the very front half of the journey, on the move from Cyprus back to the mainland, that, that, that early part of the trip, John Mark quits. Acts 13, 13 says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, it's, it's brief there. And, and we read that and think, okay, maybe something came up. Maybe there was some reason he had to go back to Jerusalem. But we come to realize this is not an insignificant situation when we get to chapter 15, because there we see Paul and Barnabas encountering again concerning John Mark. They have come back to Antioch. They are going to go back and revisit churches that they've established. And Barnabas says, let's take John Mark along again. And this dispute arises between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. In Acts chapter 15, verse 37, it says, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. A couple things that that we should notice about this. Nobody's arguing about the usefulness of John Mark. Nobody's saying, well, he was a slacker and he didn't do anything because we know Barnabas will still take John Mark with him after this separation. John Mark, Barnabas sees in John Mark a useful servant, someone who has assisted them in the past and will assist them in the future. So that's not the question. Paul makes it clear that John Mark abandoned them. That's the idea when it says that he withdrew from them. It is the idea that he deserted them that he had gone so far on the journey and something came up and John Mark said, I'm done. I am headed back to Jerusalem. I don't know if we've got the map again, but when you see the, the red arrow on the map that shows the exit stage right, that, that's John Mark leaving at that point. They have just gone through uh, those first, the island, and then they've traveled up to the mainland and, and John Mark, whatever it was about the trip across the sea, has said, I'm not going any further. Paul regards him as a deserter. For, for Paul, this, the, the, the memory of that moment, now that, that we're in Acts 15, so we're a couple of years after this fact, when, when Barnabas makes this suggestion, and Paul goes, no, this, this is the guy who deserted us once before. That memory is seared in Paul's mind, and he is unwilling to bring John Mark along. Again, it's not entirely possible for us to immerse ourselves completely in this first century situation and all that Paul and Barnabas endured in their suffering. But it's probably not a stretch for most of you to think of a time when you were on a hard road in the midst of some hardship and you felt alone. For, For some reason, you were abandoned in some way, or you felt like the people who were around you weren't there, there was no one to come alongside, and and you had that sensation of of just being abandoned by people that you trust. That's what Paul is relating to at this moment, that amidst everything else that happened on that journey, there was also just this this withdrawal, this desertion by John Mark. that's, That's a glimpse from Luke of just some of the points in that first journey. Presumably there's more that, that we don't get, but that first missionary journey was a test of endurance. 
There are great moments of blessing. No mistaking that. And when we go back next week through some of Paul's preaching, it's very clear that, that God did a great work during the course of that trip. But they suffered. There was hurts and hardships in town after town. It was hard what they did. It was difficult. When they got to the city of Derby, which is the furthest point you see on the map there, they turn around, and instead of just leaving and, and finding a quicker way back to home in Antioch, they go back to the cities that they've been in, cities where they've just preached the gospel, where churches have just been established, and now they go back to those cities, Lystra included in that, the one where Paul had been stoned, so that they can go back and preach to those young believers, these new converts in these young churches. Look at what they did. Acts chapter 14, verse 21 says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made that derby and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is the return trip now. Back to the cities where they had planted. And, and, and listen to that message. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to persevere, to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. That is a remarkable message when you think about it. That is Paul and Barnabas preaching what God has given to them to preach, but also preaching out of the, the, the very sense of their own hearts and their own experience what is true and what they need to speak to these young believers. Their message is meant to strengthen and to encourage and to warn. That, that's, that's what they go back to do. They don't go back and say, so now that you're believers, everything is great, life is good. They go back and, and they're very blunt with them. Their call is to strengthen them and to encourage them and warn them. That word, the Greek word for strengthen, is the idea of setting something firmly in place. It's, it's like putting the, the fence post in the wet concrete so that it hardens and it stays there and it, it doesn't move, it doesn't get blown around. And that's what they're, that's what they're doing. The, these guys who have been through this experience over the last year, year and a half, are going back to the believers and saying, we want to help you stay steadfast because you're going to be pushed and you're going to be tempted and there's going to be opposition and Satan is real and you are going to, you're going to endure this and you need to stand fast. You need to trust in Christ. You belong to the King of Kings. He is sovereign. Rest in him because you are going to face trials. See what they say there that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's quite the warning. It's not just potentially, Things could get hard. It is no, you will have many tribulations. The same king who has, who has decreed that you are his and you will spend eternity with him. The same king who is king over that kingdom that you will enter into one day when you stand in his presence has also decreed that there will be many tribulations along the way. There will be hardships and suffering. These are all in God's plan. So the same God who gives his children the certainty that, that we look forward to an eternal home in heaven and we have forgiveness and hope also gives the certainty that along this road, there will be many trials, many experiences of intense 
pressing or squeezing. That's what the word for tribulation means in the Greek. It's the idea of like putting something in a vice and beginning to clamp on it. Many of those afflictions. That was God's message. And spoken by guys who have firsthand experience, who can say, we've walked through this and we can assure you. And what we can also tell you is that, that your Savior loves you and he doesn't abandon you and he will give you strength just as he has provided for us throughout this trip, just as he has cared for us, just as he has gone before us. Know that the road will be hard, but Christ will never leave you. No matter how hard the road gets, that road is moving you closer and closer to to standing in his presence. And so therefore persevere and have hope. This, This is foundational to the stuff that we read from Paul in his epistles. When he addresses suffering again and again in the epistles, it's coming out of experiences like this one in Romans 15, when he says to believers, follow the example of Christ. And he he speaks in Romans 15 about Christ bearing the reproaches of men. He writes in Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, the Bible never sugarcoats the reality of the hardship. It it repeatedly warns us that such is coming, and it it tells us, it teaches us how how men and women of God have walked through these things. The whole Hebrews 11 passage is just a recounting of one story after another of those who have walked by faith and endured in the midst of that. It repeatedly shows us how they are encouraged, were encouraged by God's truth, and so can you. Rest in him, trust in him. They finally get back to Antioch and look at Acts 14, verse 24, when they finally return to the sending church. Acts 14, 24, they had passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and, and like I said, when you're in home group, just say it fast, say it like you know what, how it's pronounced, and nobody will know the difference. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Estimated they stayed in Antioch for about another year. They get back to Antioch. I don't know about you. Part of me when I get back to Antioch is like, that was awful. They threw rocks at me in Lystra. There was this clown in Cyprus who we got to the governor's office and he said we were liars. And, and, and over in this town, they chased us. And, and, and I, I'm pretty confident knowing my own flesh what that story would, would probably sound like. And, and, and the report from Luke is they get back to Antioch and it is a celebration of God's grace. It is, guys, you, you wouldn't believe what we saw God do. It is epic stories of how God intervenes in situations to bring down his grace and to empower his gospel and to save people who are lost. Zeus worshiping, mythical God worshiping, involved in all of the fallenness of the world. And and they have had a front row seat to watch God save these people, start churches. And then they went back and the believers were there and the churches were there and they were able to disciple them and help establish them. And they come back and they are... They are just telling people of God's grace and God's epic work. 
This, this journey was not entered into lightly. He, they allude to it here, and we'll, we'll touch on it again next week. But that, that when it says that they were commended to God's grace at the beginning of the journey, the beginning of chapter 13 tells us there was fasting and praying about this missionary journey. There was some serious understanding that this was not going to be easy. That, that this was something that they pleaded with God to give them wisdom about and to set apart the men that he wanted and give direction to the journey. And they pleaded with God to do this work. And though there was pain all along the way, physical pain, pain abandonment, daily struggles, the thing that it teaches Paul that we become the, the beneficiaries of later on is this remarkable lesson about weakness and dependence. That, that Paul will echo back in his letters, particularly in 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is kind of the, the closest thing we get to an autobiography from Paul. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he goes through a list of all of the different physical sufferings of being at sea, at being stoned, at, at, at being imprisoned, at being hungry. And he, he walks through this whole list of things in, in 2 Corinthians 11, not as some sort of resume of, of bragging on himself, but he's rattling off suffering, some of which is, is referenced to this trip and some to the trips that were subsequent to this. And he finishes it by saying, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. You, you, you come back to, well, what'd you get out of all this, all of this suffering and all of this hardship? And Paul is able to look back and go, I get that it's a good place to be. I get that when I am weak, when I feel like I am helpless, then that anything that happens is the grace of God and the strength of God at work in me. It, it allows me to testify to him because I know and I'm confident that I'd have checked out on that trip. I would have left. And yet it was God's strength. The, the whole message of 2 Corinthians that was learned on journeys just like this one is that we as believers are fragile clay pots, breakable, expendable, and yet what 2 Corinthians says is it's the, the power of Christ in us through his spirit that is what strengthens us and what causes us to prevail and persevere and continue to serve. The hardship of whatever road you're on is only meant to magnify the glory of God. The, the, the difficult person, the, the, the painful diagnosis, the lost job, the, you add whatever it is on that list of hardship it is to help magnify in you God's boundless grace and matchless strength. It is to showcase who your God is and who you're resting in for power. The fact that this life is hard only serves to prove that our king is great and it allows us to be weak to rest in him and depend on him and walk through these kind of things in a way that magnifies him. And one day, one day, just like on a much grander scale than what Paul and Barnabas, when they got back to Antioch and they sat with the brothers and sisters and they, they regaled this testimony after testimony of God's grace. Can you picture that day when you and I stand before our king in heaven and we are able to, to give glory back to him and recount one story after another of how it was his his grace, because it wasn't me. It was his strength that carried me. It was his wisdom that shined through in that moment. It was his words. It was his gospel. It was his spirit that magnified himself through our weakness. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are pleading with you to help us to, 
to learn from these examples, to learn from what your word is teaching and how you used the Apostle Paul to, to magnify this lesson of, of finding your grace to be sufficient in our worst times. Lord, we, we pray that, I, I pray for, there's brothers and sisters in here, no doubt, watching online who are going through struggles even now who are trying to figure out how they're going to deal with the conflict or the heartbreak or the, the break with some family member or the, the issue in the house or the car or whatever it might be. Father, we pray that, that your word and your spirit would bring encouragement this morning to strengthen their soul and to cause them to, steadfast, to stand fast, to believe that in you there is hope and provision and strength. That you are the God who holds us as your own, as your sons and daughters. That we, that we who have been bought by your son's sacrifice on the cross are now your treasured possession. Kept until that moment when we stand before you in your presence and see you face to face, and glorify you, and recount all of these ways that we have seen your, your hand. Help us this week to, to, to look for those, those ways that you show us your grace and your strength, that you continue to just prove yourself faithful to us. But mostly we pray that you would cause us to stand fast, to, to stand on truth, to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to not be ashamed of our weakness, to not be afraid of the opposition of Satan or, or of others that he would send into our lives, but to be bold and to persevere because we believe that your glory, your majesty, and the saving word of the gospel need to be declared, and you've, you've given us the joy and the privilege to do that. Thank you for sending us out to Lorton, to Woodbridge, to wherever it is that you have put us. Cause us to, to see your hand at work in us, strengthening us and helping us to speak your truth. And may we then point back, as Paul did, to give you all the glory and all the credit for when, when we are faithful and when we do speak truth and when you do bear fruit, Lord, we, we acknowledge that is your goodness. Um, working through us. And so we thank you. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have the hope of eternal life and that this, this time as we walk here, we are strangers and aliens and exiles and that ultimately you have created our souls to enjoy communion with you and we will do so eternally in your presence. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.